All right, today we're going to go ahead and get started with the seventh psalm. This is a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in places while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, I have done this. If there is iniquity in my hands, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without a cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up to me, for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of you, of the peoples, shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Oh, glorious Heavenly Father, what a beautiful day you've given us. It's just warm out here. It's, it's breezy and uh, you've given us shade of these trees and uh, the seagulls are happy and uh, you just have really given us beauty here at this time of year. We thank you for that. And uh, I just am thankful for each person here and I would ask that you would touch their hearts with something today that may uh, lead them to a better understanding of you. And also take good care of them as they uh, depart here later today and uh, go to their own respective places that in the week ahead they'll be safe, they'll be comforted, and they'll be filled with happiness and smiles. And Lord, you do know that there are people who have family members or themselves that are struggling with trials and they're struggling with uh, uh, physical affirmities and uh, other things which are affecting their walk with you. And I would pray that you would uh, be with them and your hand would be upon them heal them uh, if it's according to your will. But if it's not, if you desire that they remain in their affliction, that they would understand why they have faced it and that your grace is sufficient for them. Lord, we just thank you for uh, the opportunity of meeting out here and uh, sharing in your word and sharing in your goodness. And we do look forward in the uh, weeks ahead to uh, finally having a place to meet in. And we thank you that that is progressing. All glory to you, Lord. You're just wonderful in all your ways. And we thank you and we praise you in the name the exalted name of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Okay, just a, a few things. The Superior Avenue building is actually coming along. The electricians have been in there this week. The uh, uh, air conditioning guy got all the venting work done. I think I said before that the back door is on and the back roof over the extension of the building is done. Um, the roof has not been completed, though, because... We have kind of a small delay where uh, the electric company needs to move the electric uh, meter onto a temporary pole. And unfortunately, they never told us that they expected payment in advance. We called them and they, uh, they said, yeah, we'll do that. And uh, we set up an appointment, which they never came to. 
and then two weeks later I found out this week that you have to pay in advance so I went and paid in person on uh, Friday which means they have three days to move the service which means that by Wednesday it'll be moved and uh, the roof can get done after the roof is on man things should go really quickly so uh, uh, I've said it a couple times it should be three weeks until we're done and I'll say it again this week it should be three weeks until we're done um, so uh, there you go uh, today will be our 84th Genesis sermon and uh, just wonderful things. Uh, we have somebody that attends regularly who isn't here today. He's been here through about uh, half of them. He's been here faithfully and he's traveling. So if you would remember Dave in uh, uh, prayer as he travels, that would be great. Um, and uh, hopefully he'll see this on YouTube because if not, he's gonna be completely lost in the next two sermons because all three of these are one chapter and they are one story, which I divided for convenience sake into three separate uh, sermons. So. Um, uh, I think everybody here either has been or has been offered uh, baptism, so uh, just so you know, if that's something that you just say, I need to be baptized today, you can go right out there and do that. And um, I'm not going to do a New Testament reading as I've skipped throughout the uh, past couple months because of the heat, and uh, I'm just going to go right into the, uh, the service uh, rather than doing that so that we don't uh, have people passing out when the sun gets right up above us. And... Um, uh, let's see. I think that's all the announcements. I, I do want to thank Darla over here. She's been preparing all kinds of little things for when we actually move into a building. And uh, she brought some of them to me today. And I, I just I so much appreciate that because I am the least technically uh, responsible person in the world. I know nothing about technology and how to get to that point. So she's working with somebody else to get us at least some music instead of listening to me through the whole service and uh, a couple other things that she's done. So I want to thank her for that. And um, so we'll go ahead and uh, read one more psalm, and then we'll get into the uh, service. This will be psalm number eight. It's uh, to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, uh, psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Uh, just you know, every time I read David, I just, I, I'm filled with wonder at how he could perceive things sitting in, you know, maybe a little uh, field in outside of Bethlehem or maybe in a cave as he's being chased. And he writes these beautiful words, praising the Lord through every condition of life. What a, what a man of God. And uh, he talks about the stars and the greatness of what God has created. And here God tends to us and he minds us. What is man that you're mindful of him? You've got all of this glory and splendor and yet you look down upon us. And we're the one part of creation that actually rejects him. The stars don't reject him. They work according to his will and uh, the uh, animals, the birds, everything works according to the will of the creator except man. And yet man, he is mindful of him. It's just simply amazing. So praising the Lord for that today. And uh, let's see here. We'll go ahead and uh, get into the service. Today is Genesis 34. 
It's verses 1 through 12, and it's called Four Best Results Stick to the Blueprint. And if you know what the blueprint is, it's obviously the Word of God. It's the Bible. And so for best results, stick to the Bible. Uh, before we actually get into reading our uh, sermon text today, I'd like to go ahead and give you just a few short things on this day in history. There were lots of things, and most of them I didn't enjoy. They were just kind of, you know, not great. But there were a couple things that I found some fun in. One of them was in 1896, on this day, a guy named Harvey Hubble received a patent for something. Does anybody know what Harvey Hubble patented? I'd be really surprised if you did, but... Uh, Nope, not the telescope. That's a different Hubble. This, the what? Electrical component. The electric light bulb socket with a pull chain. And that doesn't sound like a big thing, but I got to tell you what, it affects every one of us almost every day of our life, including now we use the same type of mechanism for ceiling fans and for other things. And uh, what an inspiration. You know, what an inspiration that that man says, I can make life easier by doing this. And we walk into closets now and we don't go fumbling for something over here. We just swing our arm and find that little string and pull. And I, I just am really thankful for a guy like uh, Harvey Hubble, who didn't just invent something and put it in his house, but went out and got a patent and other people benefit from it as well. Um, good old American ingenuity. Uh, 1909, the American ship, the Arapaho, became the first ship ever to do something. Does anybody know what the Arapaho did? This is 1909. It was the first ship ever to use an SOS distress signal. It was off the coast of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. We can tie that right in with uh, the Bible, Acts 27, where Paul is uh, lost at sea. He's out in the middle of nowhere and uh, uh, you know, I think it was 14 days. They were without food. They threw over the uh, the uh, you know the workings of the ship, the mast and all that kind of stuff, and eventually they threw off all the cargo and they uh, ran aground on Malta, and uh, everybody on the ship was saved. But uh, you know, up until this time in 1909, there was no nobody that knew that you were lost at sea until you just didn't show up on time, and uh, all of a sudden things changed with the SOS distress signal. So great stuff there. 1934, Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay received its very first federal prisoners. As you know, it was closed, I think, in the, what was it, the 80s? Maybe the, I think it was the 80s. And um, uh, it, it, what surprises me is there have probably been more movies about Alcatraz than people that actually were in Alcatraz. I mean, it seems like there must be dozens or, you know, multitudes of them. And uh, Clint Eastwood did a great one. Um, uh, what's that guy's name? He was with Sean Connery. Uh, called The Rock. That was a pretty good movie, a little excitement. And uh, anyway, there are lots of movies about Alcatraz or filmed at Alcatraz. And uh, that was back in 1934. They opened for business. 1945, the Allies informed Japan that they would determine Emperor Hirohito's future status after Japan's surrender. In other words, they offered an unconditional surrender, and Japan says, we want to uh, get this sorted out about Hirohito now. And America said, no. You're going to surrender, and then we will figure this out. And um, they very wisely, the Americans very wisely, did not execute him and did not put him in prison forever, but allowed him to remain on his throne. But the thing that they did require is that he uh, renounce his claim to deity. He is not a god. He is a man. And uh, so uh, we uh, determined that back at this day, and um, uh, Japan flourished since then. They've, uh, they're a great nation, but they no longer have... 
a supposed god sitting on the chrysanthemum throne. Now, just so you know, the uh, children of Hirohito uh, have not renounced their claim to deity. They haven't made a claim to deity, but they haven't renounced one either. And so they can, at some point, if they wish, claim to be gods. And uh, that would cause all kinds of trouble in the, uh, the world as we know it. Then who knows, that may be a part of the end times. So uh, kind of fun stuff there, uh, which uh, was going back to 1945 in the end of uh, World War II. In 1984, another really, really interesting thing to me. I just, I love this guy. He's uh, one of my favorite presidents, uh, the favorite one I've had while I'm alive, uh, U.S. President Reagan, was preparing for his weekly radio broadcast when, during testing of the microphone, he probably tapped on it, and he uh, said this of the Soviet Union. My fellow Americans, I am pleased to tell you that I just signed legislation that would outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. And of course, that caused all kinds of stir around the world. And uh, half of the world was up in arms, and uh, the left in America obviously was up in arms too. But uh, it was, uh, he's, he's a great man, and he had a great sense of humor. And uh, I just really appreciate the, uh, the uh, life and presidency of Ronald Reagan. It was one of only two times in my military career of nine years, four months, and 15 days that I broke down and cried. It was the day that he left office, and uh, the other was the day the Challenger exploded, and uh, we lost those people. I was lying in bed in Japan when I heard the news. So uh, he had a big, big effect on my life. A um, couple birthdays, just because we have so few points today, I threw in a couple birthdays, which I normally don't do. Uh, Jerry Falwell. The U.S. TV evangelist and the leader of the Moral Majority was born this day in 1933. And if you know uh, Jerry Falwell, he was uh, politically uh, uh, aligned in America. And he was so politically aligned, something you may not know about him, that he could pick up a phone if he knew there was a uh, uh, seat coming open in a particular district that he knew would go conservative. He would call and uh, align people that he chose to uh, be elected to that position. And I know this because a seminary professor of mine was offered by Jerry Falwell in person. Uh, he said, I'd like you to run for this seat. You're a shoe-in. I will support you, and you will win. That's how much power this man had at the time. And uh, the moral majority has declined because immoral, immorality has uh, increased in America. But that was uh, Jerry Falwell. And then one other person of note uh, on this day is a lady named Marilyn Voss Savant. And if you know her, she was born in St. Louis on this day. She's a writer, and she also has the highest IQ ever recorded in human history at 228. So a uh, very intelligent lady, and uh, seeming uh, it's kind of funny that she has a name which matches uh, her intelligence, being a savant, somebody who's uh, incredibly intelligent in one area or another. But in her case, she's intelligent in many areas, and she's not lacking in any. So uh, there you go with that. And uh, that's this day in history, which is 11 August. And uh, we'll go ahead and read our, uh, our verses for today, which is Genesis 34, and it's verses 1 through 12. Now, as I'm reading this, as I say week after week, I want you to try to think about what these verses are pointing to, okay? Uh, it's, it's three sermons long. I'm not going to do this all in one sermon because I want you to get all the historical and cultural details as well as what's being pointed forward to. So you're not going to hear what these verses are for until the third sermon, but I will give you hints. And also, I'd like you to think about what's coming in the New Testament. Why would God devote an entire chapter, there's only 50 chapters in Genesis, why would he devote an entire chapter 
to the rape of a young girl unless he was trying to teach us something about what is coming. And not only that, but why would he put it after the, the particular sermons that we've just seen? You know, he was in uh, uh, the two camps, and then he met up with Esau, a picture of Christ being reconciled to man. And then he went to Sukkot, a picture of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the church age. And then after that, you have the millennial reign of Christ, which we talked about in our last sermon. And then from there, you have this insertion. And I will tell you this, that in chapter 35, the first verses of that point to something which is coming after the millennial reign of Christ. So if you know at all your Bible in the book of Revelation, there's not much. So there, it's pointing to something very specific. Why would God devote an entire chapter and insert it in this location? It is very, very important to our dealings with Jesus Christ as human beings. And so as I read this, I'd like you to pay attention and just try to think through what we're going to talk about. Uh, here we go. This is uh, chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attached, attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter. Now uh, Dinah, his daughter, now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. And make marriages with us. Give us, give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and also trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. The 31 verses of chapter 34 are going to show us the impetuous nature of a young man named Shechem. And we saw that today right here. His actions failed to follow the right blueprint and how to handle his relationship with Jacob's daughter Dinah. In the end, by not following the blueprint, he only found disaster. This chapter is also going to show us, and you're going to see this in the uh, next sermons ahead, the brutal and the unmerciful nature of two of the sons of Jacob. Now, what they did was an offense, and it can in no way be condoned. But I have to be honest. Like many times in the past, until I prepared for this particular sermon, I had no idea why this passage was included. Yes, I admit, it's a very interesting story, as they all are, but without a purpose for its inclusion, it is just that. It's an interesting story. It doesn't really give us anything to work with other than the story itself. Women get raped around the world all the time and they're not included in the Bible and yet this one is and we have to ask why is that what is God telling us why this story and the commentaries about this chapter I got to tell you what they didn't help at all with what is being pictured rather instead what they helped with was the cultural and the, you know the details like that but there was nothing about why this story is included in any commentary that I could find and so as I was doing this sermon, I was studying each verse and I was in prayer, as I always am, about why are you including this in here, God? What, what is it that you intend for us to see? 
Now, like this story on the Daughters of Lot, if you remember that story and my conclusions on that, I realized that I completely misunderstood this passage, even on a very basic level. Unfortunately for you, until we finish this chapter, you're not going to see the full picture. The reason is, unlike many other chapters which are divided into smaller sections, this story is a complete unit. So if you want to have an understanding of the chapter, you'll have to stick it out through all three sermons. And if you can't make it, they will be on YouTube for you. And I'm going to try to make it interesting for you through each sermon. But the overall picture here is both fascinating and it's very saddening at the same time. What this is showing became rather clear to me, and it troubled me especially when I realized what God was trying to tell us. Before I did, though, I realized that this is the Lord's word, and therefore I must present what I believe he intends for us to see. As an advance clue to you, and maybe to help you think this through as we go, it needs to be noted right now, and I said this at the end of last sermon, I wanted you to think about this, that through the entire chapter, Jacob is never uh, quoted as saying a single word, nothing, until the 30th verse, right at the very end of the chapter, okay? He's mentioned 12 times as Jacob, he's mentioned one time as Israel, but it's always speaking about him, not quoting him until that 30th verse. Jacob, as he has thus far, he pictures the Lord. And one more thing which is lacking, the Lord is never mentioned at all in this entire passage. In any way, he's not prayed to for guidance or anything else at all. It is a passage devoid of what is needed in many ways. If these verses hurt my heart, and I assure you they do, how much more his? Our text verse for today comes from uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. It's verses 8 and 9. Very famous uh, passage that most of you probably know by heart. For by grace you have been saved, and that through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not of works lest any man should boast. God has done great things for the people of the world through his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. What God offers is a gift. It can't be earned, nor can it be purchased. It is something that also comes not by man's will, but by an act of love from the creator. When we get things out of order, especially you know, in our salvation, confusion ensues. Along with confusion come unhappy results as we find ourselves stuck deeper and deeper in a theological quagmire. God makes it simple for us, but we, we muddy the waters. In everything, there is to be an order, and there's to be a right way and a wrong way to do things. For example, if we want to marry a lady, there is an order in how we handle the process. When we get those things out of order, only trouble can result, and we've seen that so far today. This is the way things are in most avenues that we take in life. If we want to build a house, for example, we don't build a roof first, we lay the foundation. And instead, after laying the foundation, we put up the walls. And instead, after that, we uh, do other certain things. During the building, we may make sure that we put in the electric wires. And in order to do that, we'll call my brother Ethan, who's an electrician, and he'll come and do the electricity. And then we may have to put in plumbing. So we'll call our friend Dave, who works here, and he does plumbing stuff, and he will... Uh, uh, coming into the plumbing. We do all of these necessary things in order. So foundation, walls, put in all this internal stuff and then put on the roof. Now we need to know that God's gift is just that. It is a gift. We need to make sure that we receive that gift and then work on the relationship, not the other way around. 
in order to be saved, in order to build a house, or in order to marry a beautiful young lady, we need to follow the right blueprint and the proper plan. The Bible tells us how to be saved. The Bible shows us about the house that God is building. And the Bible gives us right instruction on how to handle relationships between men and women who are interested maybe in getting married or even staying married. All of these are found in God's word. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is Shechem's love for Dinah. The story we're about to look at is not a one-for-one -one comparison of what it pictures. These pictures never are, or they would simply say what is intended. Rather, God is using real events that happen to show us spiritual truths. And so we have to infer things along the way. When a young girl has physical contact with a man, it obviously doesn't directly transfer into the spiritual realm. But the outpouring of the love because of that act may. We need to remind ourselves of this as we go along in these verses and when we see the overall picture of what is being presented. All right, our first verse from chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Dinah is the only recorded daughter of Jacob, but it is an error to say that she's the only daughter of Jacob. Elsewhere in the Bible, and in fact even in this chapter, it mentions his daughters in the plural, and so it's likely that he had more. The sons are recorded because the name and inheritance travels through the males. Dinah alone, of all of the daughters that he possibly has, is recorded. And it's certainly because of the events of this chapter and what they ultimately picture. Here in the first verse, it notes that she is the daughter of Leah. Now, because these names are mentioned, I have to give you what their meaning is and remind you of this because it all is important in what we're going to look at. Leah, as we have seen since her first introduction, pictures the Old Testament law. Dinah's name, on the other hand, means vindicated. These pictures continue in this passage right here. In Genesis chapter 30, Leah, who pictures the law, had her final three recorded children. They were Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah. Each of them pictured the final workings of Christ as he fulfilled the law for us. Issachar means he is wages. Zebulun means the glorious dwelling place, and Dinah, as noted, means vindicated. Paul tells us of the fulfillment of her name in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says there, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, speaking of Jesus. He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Jesus Christ prevailed over the law. And so we see the meaning of the names of the children. He is our wages, Issachar, unto eternal life. He entered the glorious dwelling place, the Zebulun, with his own blood, and he was vindicated, or Dinah, by the Spirit. And the proof is the resurrection. The law was fulfilled, and only after that New Testament grace, which is pictured by Rachel, could be bestowed upon the people of the world. This is something that we need to remember in the chapters ahead because it all bears on what we're going to be looking at. The, this girl, Dinah here, is probably about 13 years old and no more than 15. Although this is considered very young by our standards, the Jewish commentators of a later period will fix the earliest age for the marriage of a female at 12 years and one day. All right. Now, we can figure her age because she was born right around the same time as Joseph. 
Joseph is going to be 17 years old when he's sold by his brothers. And this is seen in Genesis 37, verse 2. So that means that Jacob has been living in this area and the place that he came from, which was called Sukkot, for about six or seven years. Here in this verse, it says that she went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, the reason isn't given, but the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus says that it was because it was a time of festival in the land. And so she went out to see the finery of the women in the country. If it's a festival time, then the ladies, of course, are going to be wearing their best clothes. Being a curious young lady, as most young ladies are, she took the opportunity to see the newest fashions. Now, TV had not yet been invented. I don't know if you know that, but there was no TV 6,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago when the story came about. So she had to go out and actually see these things for herself. Now, when she went out, I'm sure she had a cell phone and she did take pictures of the people, but there was no TV or internet to upload them on, so the poor girl. But anyway, a lot of commentators here find fault in this particular verse. They say such a young lady out alone shouldn't be. But I got to tell you what, this is no less common in today's world and elsewhere in the Bible as well. After having lived in the area for a certain amount of time, the family would know the level of safety and would have known how to act concerning this. And I'm going to give you a perfect example. I lived in Japan and there are children that are five and six years old that take the train alone. It's nothing uncommon. I've been in Southeast Asia for many years where you see girls that are this tall carrying their siblings that are infants down the road with no parent parental supervision. People know what is acceptable for their children. So these type of commentaries, I, I just would ask that you disregard them until you've thought them through. All right. My opinion, we cannot find any fault at all here. However, the Geneva Bible does give a good thought on the matter, which I want to give you anyway. Here's what they say. This example teaches us that too much liberty is not to be given to youth. Now, I have to agree because I was this age myself and I know all of the things that I did back then. And so I think personally that it would be good to keep youth locked up at least until 25, maybe 30 years of age. All right, depends on the youth, but that's just my opinion. Verse two, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and he lay with her and he violated her. As has ha happened way too often in human history, what should not have been done has happened. Shechem, who is the son of Hamor, is the ruler of the surrounding area, saw what was not his, he took it, and he brought about what is going to be a heap of trouble for everyone involved. Now here in this verse, the guy Hamor is identified as a Hivite. Way back in Genesis 10, if you were here, you saw the, uh, the Table of the Nations series. I think I did three sermons on the Table of the Nations. The Hivites are identified as a son of Canaan, and he is the son of Ham. Canaan is the one that uh, Noah cursed when Ham, his direct son, violated. He did something perverse to his father, Noah. So Noah turned around and cursed his youngest son, Canaan. Okay, So this is going to be a Gentile people as opposed to the Hebrews who are in Jacob's clan. Think that through. That's part of what I want you to start thinking about in, these, in this context. Now, I don't want to go too far off base here. And you know me. I try to stick directly to the Bible. I don't like to introduce things that are not true. But there's one commentator that I read about, a guy named Perk Eliezer. He says that, in fact, Dinah got pregnant from what happened here. And the child was eventually taken to Egypt and was brought up as Potiphar's wife as her daughter, Asenath. I'm sorry, he, she was taken there. Yes, and uh, I want to make sure I get this right. She was taken to Egypt and was brought up 
by Potiphera's wife as her daughter Asenath. And I'm bringing this up for a reason, and I don't want you to think this is true. It's not in the Bible, but it does show us something. Asenath is eventually going to become Joseph's wife and bear two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they're going to be included in the sons and the tribes of Israel. The name Asenath is an Egyptian name. But if the story that Perk Eliezer proposes is true, it very well may have been adopted from a Hebrew word, which is the word Asan. It's used a few times in the Old Testament, particularly around the Egyptian years. And it means mischief, evil, or harm. And this is exactly what occurred in order for Dinah to have a child. Now, like I said, I don't want you to insert that in your brain as a true story, but it does reveal a pattern which makes sense. Now, because certain names are given, I'm going to give their meaning. I'm going to explain their meaning here. We need to understand them in order to understand what is being pictured later. The name Shechem, which I've explained already in two previous sermons, comes from a verb, which means to rise early. And it comes from a noun, which means shoulder. Both of those indicate wise diligence of a person. All right. Shechem's father, which I explained the last sermon, is Hamor, and his name means he ass. He's a male donkey, which is a beast of burden. It gets its name from its reddish color. So what else in the Bible has a reddish color and it got its name from that? Kind of, I hope you'll think that one through too because all these things will help you understand what's going on in this passage. A donkey is an unclean animal, okay? Just as the Gentiles are considered unclean to the Jewish people. So maybe that will help you think this passage through as well. Donkeys are beasts of burden. They have value. And under the Mosaic law, the firstborn had to be redeemed by a clean animal, by a lamb. Now, I hope you're thinking that through. If they were not redeemed by a lamb, they were to have their neck broken. And that's found in Exodus 13, 13. So I hope you're beginning to see a picture of what we're being told about in this passage. Finally, Hamor is noted as a Hivite. The term Hivite probably means villager. It's related to a noun, which means village, and it's also related to a verb, which means to prostrate oneself or to worship. All right? These three names are given to connect us to Dinah and what will happen. Verse 3, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. Shechem was the son of the ruler, and he probably felt that he had the right to do whatever he wished with anybody in the, the kingdom. He saw this beautiful young lady and he took her. Now, what, whether he felt anything at all more than a passing fancy for Dinah is unknown. But after the act, he feels his strong attraction to her. Okay, once again, think about that. What, what happens in the New Testament? Something happens and then there's something after the act which causes a strong attraction. I'm trying to get you to think these verses through. The Bible notes that he loved her and he spoke kindly to the young woman. Every commentator of this verse that I saw, every single one of them, and even the translators in their margin notes, note the same thing. The original translation says that Shechem spoke to the heart of Dinah. In Hebrew, vidber alev. In other words, it seems to imply that he truly loved her and he wanted her to love him. But it also seems to imply that he needed to do this because what he did was forced. He speaking to her heart was intended to get her to love him after the fact, not before the act. In the fickleness of human relations, these things go wrong more often than they go right. Sometimes we do what's wrong, 
and then we work to make it right. And sometimes we start out doing what's right and then we blow it and everything goes wrong. This is because, and I am absolutely certain of this, it's because we put emotions above commitment. Invariably, when we do this, we get it wrong. Emotions are to be a result of commitment, not the basis for it. Now, if we get that wrong, when the emotions change, there is no support for the commitment. This is the case with Shechem, and it's seen again later in the Bible as well. And I'd like you to think about that, because way too often I have people email me and they say, what, you know, I'm thinking about marrying this person and what should I do? And I tell them, I say, this and this and this, and I put it always commitment first and then worry about the emotional relationship later. And I tell them, in advance, this emotional relationship is going to come and it's going to go throughout your marriage. Do not base what you're doing on your feelings of her beauty or her emotions or anything like that. Invariably, people reject that. It happens time and time again. I had it happen a couple weeks ago. Somebody emailed me and they wanted to meet and they said, you were absolutely right. Now I'm facing all of these troubles because I didn't listen to what you said. And now we're going to counsel this guy to work things out so that he doesn't end up in a divorce in his young age. This is a problem. And I'd like to give you something that I'd like, hopefully you will just click on this on YouTube. Try to remember this. And if you don't, I'll send you the link to it. It's a uh, uh, very short video. I think it's about a minute and a half long. It's from the movie Fiddler on the Roof. And it's a song that they did called Do You Love Me? All right. It's Fiddler on the Roof and his wife, you know, this, this guy, he's got his wife and they uh, uh, are talking one day. The three daughters all want to get married and the one wants to marry somebody that they don't want. And another wants to marry somebody they don't want. And another wants to marry somebody they don't want. When all along their family has been arranging marriages for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he says, what do we do? And they're talking about it and they have this dilemma in their thing. And during this talk, the lady starts thinking about her own relationship and she turns to her husband and she says do you love me and he says what are you talking about you know get back and do your cooking or whatever you know it just kind of blows her off and she says no do do you i'm sorry it's the man that says it to the woman he says do you love me golda do you love me and so there she says just stop talking like a fool and it goes back and forth in this banter okay and this song develops out of it and as i said it's a very short song but she says, I've cooked and I've cleaned for you for 26 years and I've raised three children for you. And she's talking about all the things that they did and they also talk about the fact that they had never seen each other until the night of their wedding or the day of their wedding and they'd never touched each other until the night of their wedding. And all of this is establishing that their marriage was based on a commitment and it was not based on a uh, emotional relationship. And that marriage lasted. And if you look throughout human history, Japan and all of these countries which used to have these uh, marriages which were uh, established based on commitment, they all lasted. And I'm not saying there wasn't infidelity, but there was a commitment in the relationship which caused the marriage to last. And in America and throughout the rest of the world, in Japan as well, they are now in the habit of having an emotional relationship. And what's the result? More than half of every marriage in America ends, and usually they end very quickly. Now, I don't mean to get off on a long tangent about this, but this is very, very important, is that we need to establish our relationships in the proper order, and we need to follow the blueprint, and that is the Word of God, and to be committed to what we're doing rather than emotionally attracted and then making a commitment, okay? Verse 4, so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. 
What this is implying is that he was looking to his father to get him out of any mess he'd gotten into and using his father's authority to arrange a marriage between the two of them. Now, several commentators note that this shows that even at early times and among pagans as well, it was right to get parents' consent before getting married. And then some of them say both sets of parents. And I got to tell you what, this is something that just bothers me. That is a very, very big leap for one verse in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't get both sets of parents, uh, you know, to agree to a marriage and not to ask for that. But they are making a conclusion after this guy has uh, had sex with Dinah. They're completely ignoring that. And they're saying that he's following the right pattern by talking to his father when it had nothing to do with it at all. All right. If you get something in your head because of your cultural surroundings, like in America, go ask the father, go ask the mother, then that's what you're going to believe. And if you read a commentary by a person who's a, a strong authority in the Bible, then you're probably going to believe them. But both of these approaches, as I give, tell you, every chance I get are the wrong way to approach the Bible. You have to leave what you believe behind and approach the Bible with a blank slate. All right, disregard commentaries, disregard what Charlie Garrett says in the sermon, and think through what God is trying to tell us first, and then come to your conclusions. Don't insert your presuppositions into it and make conclusions that way. Shechem forced Dinah, and now he is trying to get out of it because he's fallen in love with her, and he doesn't want to lose her. It has nothing to do with asking parents' permission. All right, our second thought today, Hamor's offer. Verse 5. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. There's no note here of how Jacob heard. And it could have been from Dinah, but later it says that the brothers are going to come and take her from Shechem's house. So it may be that he violated her and kept her in the house and she stayed there the entire time. It could be that one of Dinah's friends, you know, found out about it and went and told Jacob. Or it could be that Shechem's father came over and told him, and he waited around to get the family together to hold counsel. It doesn't really matter. The Bible doesn't tell us. One way or another, he found out and he kept calm. Were this me, I got to tell you what, I would have flown right off the handle. I don't handle stuff like this very well. But Jacob is very reserved in what he's doing. And as I said, he does not say a single word in this chapter until the end of the chapter. And he is picturing the Lord Jesus. So remember, whatever he is picturing here, is pointing to how Jesus handles exactly the same situation. So remember that and try to think this through. Verse 5 continues, Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now if Dinah is about 13 years old, this would make the oldest son, Reuben, only about 19 years old, give or take. So you can say, well, how can such a bunch of young people be out in the field taking care of flocks? But if you go to Israel today, and I mean right now today, and go out in your car into the middle of absolutely nowhere, you can see very young children, no more than maybe 15 years old, and they're out there tending to flocks. And this is as common as cucumbers. So it's not something that's unusual or that the Bible is saying they're being irresponsible by sending their children out to tend to flocks. It's not that way at all. By now, all of the boys in the family are old enough to tend to the flocks because Joseph, as I said, is born right at the same time as Dinah. This is their job, and as shepherds, they're out in the field, they're busy attending to the flocks, and Jacob is not recorded as having said a single word or showing any anger at all. Now, as a little application for us in our own lives, and you know, this is just something that I'm inferring, I'm not trying to say that you should take this and run with it, 
but it does make sense that when we have something like this come up, it's better not to follow the Charlie Garrett approach and to fly off the handle. It's better to remain reserved. It's better to sit back and to evaluate things quietly. Because as soon as you start getting involved in uh, rage and getting involved in all kinds of uh, anger about this and directing people with what you're doing, you are going to have trouble. So that's something that we need to consider, and we can consider it right from this verse here. Let's go on to verse 6. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to speak uh, to Jacob to speak with him. Now, if Hamor was the one to tell Jacob what happened, as I said, we don't know that, then Jacob probably told him that he needed to talk to the boys whenever they came home, and then he would call Hamor back. Because Jacob has four wives, it would be right to call the whole brothers of Dinah, who were born to Leah, at least them, and talk to them. This would include, he, she has six whole brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Probably after such a meeting, maybe with all of the boys, but at least with these six, they would uh, then call Hamor and they would talk about their resolution. Shechem's father is the one that is on the outside, in other words. He has to wait until they make the decision. Once that decision is made, then they'll do it in everyone's presence. Verse 7, and the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. Apparently, there was no need to wait for them to come in from the field on their own. Somebody probably sent a message or somebody sent a messenger, whatever, for them to come in. And they came in as soon as they heard the news directly. And they were probably stewing all the way home. If you know the rest of this chapter already, you can be certain of that. Verse 7 continues. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. Now, after stewing all the way home, it says they were grieved and they were very angry. There is a time for anger. The Bible tells us that. But in the process of anger, we need to step back and we need to make sound judgments. It's very hard to disconnect the two. But when we let our anger take over, that battle, and I mean whatever that battle is, is already lost. And such is going to be the case right here. This is the fourth time now that the name Israel has been mentioned in the Bible but it is the very first time that it's used in the collective sense of the family of Jacob and thus all of the people of Israel, meaning all throughout history. And that's another thing I want you to think about. This is, Israel is reflecting the people, Israel. So what is this talking about? Okay, the term that is used here for in Israel is be Yisrael. That's what it is in Hebrew. It means in Israel. The B is, it's just like the very first word of the Bible. Bereshit, in the beginning. That B means in, okay? But a guy named Albert Barnes, who I quote all the time, he's one of my favorite commentators, finds difficulty in this translation. Here's what he says. He says, the land afterwards, generally called Israel, was not yet so named. Obviously, Israel, the land, wasn't called Israel, the land, until after the Exodus, okay? He goes on, and the sons of Jacob were neither called Israel, Israelites, nor Jews, Till long after this. How then can it be said that Shechem had wrought folly in Israel? All right, now he's not thinking this through very well in this particular commentary because it's Moses that's writing the account. So for him to go back and say a disgraceful thing in Israel has no problem at all. But to go on, in order to resolve this particular line of reasoning that he has, he says that Bay Yisrael, this term right here, should be translated against Israel, not in Israel. 
both Israel and Jacob are noted in this one verse, okay? And so he says it's an indicating an offense against God, and so the term Israel is used, and it's indicating an offense against Jacob, and so his name is used. His idea against Israel is possible, but I got to tell you what, that is not the intent here at all. And it may seem like I'm getting into minutiae here, but I want you to understand that this will affect the entire theology of what you are looking at in the Old Testament, this one word here, all right? It is the sons who are angry in this verse. They carry the offense, not for the father, but for themselves. The offense is against the family, not just the man. Be Yisrael then is a standing phrase for the whole family and thus the people Israel. Albert Barnes, I believe, got it wrong. This term, Be Yisrael, will be used from this verse forward in connection with the unity of the people and the family who come from Israel. Offenses may come from within the family or they may come from without the family, but the offenses are against the name and the integrity of this special and select group of people that are formed by God for his purposes. And so the entire term that's used here in the Hebrew, Nebala Asa Be'Yisrael is used. It says a disgraceful thing in Israel. Nabala is the word that's translated as disgraceful act. I'm going to give you a couple examples. In Deuteronomy 22, it is used to identify a woman who was found to not be a virgin on her wedding night. In Judges, it's used to describe one of the most noted transgressions in all of Israel's history when a man named Achan took an accursed thing into his home that should have been destroyed as an act of devotion to God. It is also used by Abigail, the future wife of King David, to describe her husband, Nabal. Now, you listen to the two words, Nabal and Nabala. She's making a play on his name to indicate the type of man that he is. In Hebrew, she says, Nabal Shemo Unebala Imo. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Now, when we read Shakespeare, we appreciate Shakespeare as much for the style as we do for the content. The same is true with Hebrew. And I have to tell you, it is tragic how much beauty is lost in the translation. We just don't get this in the English. But I want to tell you something, and I believe this with all my heart. There are actually things I believe that are gained in a translation if it's done properly. This is the wonder of God's word. We can learn from it by understanding it in any of the languages that he created, any of them, each of these languages is certainly going to carry something special and it's going to give us a certain insight into his precious heart. So keep reading, keep learning, and keep loving this precious word. Now I'll tell you, I am jealous of people that can read the Bible in French or that can read it in uh, German or my wife can read it in Japanese because if you read it in those languages, and I'll tell you, especially in Japanese or Chinese, those are pictorial alphabets just like Hebrew is. And so these people's minds are being geared to understanding in a completely different way than we are. There are patterns that are developed in the Chinese alphabet which are reflected, for example, in the Genesis stories. It's wonderful to see these things. So as I said, just keep reading this word, and if you can read it in more than one language, read it in that language as well as in English. I would ask you to do that. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. This verse goes right back to verse four. If you remember what it said there, so Shechem spoke to his father saying, get me this young woman as a wife. He could clearly see here that his son is completely smitten with Dinah. 
And so he's asking in good faith for this to be worked out in a favorable way. The implication here is that even if he did something wrong, he's willing to make it right and he's doing it in love. She won't just be vindicated as her name implies, but she will be cared for in the process. Verse 9, and make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. Now, in order to get the sons of Jacob to become more amenable to the proposal, he brings in a long-standing agreement. The first part of which is that marriages would be welcome between them. Most, if not all of the sons right now are not married. They're just too young for that at this point in the Bible. And yet he says that the giving of daughters between the two parties would be welcome. This tells us that Jacob does in fact have other daughters. As they have children and their children intermarry, then they are going to eventually become one united group of people. Now this might not sit well with Jacob. I'm explaining this for a reason because all of this is pointing to what it's going to picture. Abraham, if you remember, ensured that he sent a servant to get a wife for his son Isaac from the home and family up in uh, Mesopotamia and not from the ladies of Canaan. Isaac and Rebekah in turn did the same thing. They were unhappy with the Canaanite wives of Esau and so they sent Jacob up to get a wife from their family group again. However, there's a problem because Jacob now has 11 sons, he has daughters, he has servants, and things could no longer progress as they had in the past. And all of this is probably on Jacob's mind. And as a demonstration of this, this is something for you to think about. Eventually, Canaanites will marry into the family. And two Canaanites in particular are going to be very important when they marry into the family of the Israelites. One of them is named Tamar. She's going to actually not marry, but she's going to have intercourse with uh, the four son Judah. And from that uh, union, they're going to have a couple children, Perez and Zerah. And Perez is going to end up in the line and ancestry of Jesus Christ. And then a second instance of the same thing is when the uh, Israelites go back after the exodus into the land and they're subduing the land. There's a harlot that rescues them from some trouble. Her name is Rahab. And she eventually marries into the line of Israel and she again becomes an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And so we see that even though there's this dilemma going on in Jacob's mind, it's also pointing to the Gentile people being brought into the covenant people of Israel. Think about that for your New Testament theology as we go along. Verse 10, so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Hamor's talking here, it's wonderful talk, isn't it? But it's the fanciful dream that's never going to happen. But his intent is good and his desires for his son's happiness. It's clearly evident. Every word he's spoken is one which desires peace and harmony between both of these parties. He can't change what has happened, but he can ensure that the future will be different. He's offered everything as if they were family. Daughters, the land, trading in the land, livelihood, everything. Everything that's necessary to be established and prosper in the land, he has made available to the clan of Jacob. Our third and final thought today, a dowry is offered. Verse 11, then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. The father has finished his petition and it included everything that one would expect between members of a family united. But now the offer of a husband for a wife has been made. Shechem's words are directed to the father, Jacob, who has the ultimate say in this particular matter, but he's also speaking to the brothers who were both offended by his actions and who certainly have the right of input concerning their sister. He says, let me find favor or grace in your eyes. The Hebrew word is chen. 
And it's the same word, for example, that's used way back in Genesis chapter 6 when it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The word is chen. Where there could be wrath, such as the flood, the time of the flood when the whole world was destroyed in God's wrath, there was grace with Noah. And he's looking for that type of grace and that type of reconciliation right here. He also adds in that he will meet whatever their demand is for a dowry. However, by offering this dowry after the fact, his brothers are going to take it in a completely different way than he intends. He's violated their sister, and he's hoping that payment is going to appease them. In essence, and as we're going to see in the very last verse of this chapter, to them it would be as if they sold her as a whore. The impetuous act of violating her and the words he has used in an attempt to pacify the brothers is going to carry a very high price. Grace is the very last thing that he's going to find. However, the lack of grace by the brothers is also going to cost them as well. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 says this, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And we see that all the time. We see it on the news. I'll tell you what, I was thinking of somebody just a, a couple days ago when I was in Massachusetts last week. There was a guy's picture came up on the, uh, uh, the TV and he was wearing the white, uh, I'm sorry, the orange suit of a person that's, uh, you know, in prison. It was his mug photo. And he was a good looking young guy and the, the sound wasn't on. So I have no idea what he did. But I thought, you know, it could have been something as simple as him getting in a car accident and jumping out and punching the person. Now, he's in an accident which he didn't cause, but then he gets out and he may have punched this person and now he's in jail for assault. Or maybe he beat the guy to death and maybe he's in jail for murder. And that's what this particular uh, saying in Ecclesiastes is telling us. It says, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Whatever this guy did to earn jail, he's going to suffer for it for the rest of his life. And we're going to see that happen with two of the sons of Jacob very soon in exactly the same manner. And it could happen to you if you just don't take time to calm down when you have a, uh, an issue in your life. Don't let that uh, anger rest in your bosom and make you a fool. All right, verse 12. This is our last verse of the day. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. In his zeal to have Dinah, Shechem tells them that whatever bride price they asked, he would be willing to pay it. He could probably see on their faces that even now they're still unhappy and his father's already made his offer and he's willing to add anything onto it. And then he speaks a second time because he knows that things aren't going well. Now, without going through all of the details of what these 12 verses picture, because we're going to do that in the last sermon, I want, you to, rev I want to review a couple things here for you to try to remember and to think about. All right? When we get through these next two sermons, keep thinking about them and how they fit into the New Testament theology of what Christ has done for us and how we are to approach him. All right, here's the first thing I want you to remember. Dinah means vindicated, and she is used as a picture of the power of the Spirit as evidenced by the resurrection of the Lord. She is the daughter of Leah, who pictures the law. Hamor and Shechem are Gentiles who are looking to become united to the family of Jacob through marriage. Hamor has offered the two clans to be united, and Shechem has offered to pay for the girl that he's experienced and now that he wants as his own. 
Next week, we're going to continue through this chapter and we're going to see new conditions that are brought in by the sons of Jacob in order for any marriage to come about. Now, remember as we go on that Jacob has said nothing yet, nor will he until the entire account is over. And finally, the Lord has not been invoked either by name or by prayer during this entire account, nor will he be through the entire chapter. Chapter 34 is devoid of many things that we would think are normal in, in the Bible. It's a very important chapter for us to consider. Now, before we finish up today, as I always do, I want to make at least one petition to you with clarity instead of these veiled pictures that are pointing to something else. So I'd like just a couple more minutes to talk to you about Jesus Christ, why he came, and how it is truly important to you, and how you can become a part of the family of God and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. All right? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. We inherited sin from Adam. We've also committed our own sins in our own life, and we die because of that. And we are spiritually dead already because of it, because of Adam's sin. We're born spiritually dead. It says that uh, there is none righteous. No, not one. The Bible tells us that there is not one person on earth that can be considered righteous in and of himself. All right, the wages of sin is death, and there is none righteous. Okay? But... The Bible goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we are in our unrighteousness and we die because of our sin, but God offers us a gift. And he says, I will take your unrighteousness and I will nail it to the cross with my son and I will take his righteousness and I will give it to you if you will simply do this one thing. Just believe, have faith that what I am offering you in my son is sufficient to save you. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, in addition to that, you will be saved. And the resurrection is tied into calling on the name of the Lord because two things. One, we don't call on a dead Lord. We call on a risen Savior. And two, the fact that he was resurrected proved that he was born and lived without sin. That's why we need to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you can make that mental leap and say, yes, I believe God really did this for me in the person of his own son, Jesus Christ, then you, in fact, are saved. And you will never lose that as long as you live. Stray as you might, you may backslide as I was talking to somebody here about today, but God will never take away the gift that he has given. That's why it's called a gift. It's something we can't merit, and it's something that we don't merit even after we receive it. Okay, call on the name of the Lord Jesus and allow him to take away your unrighteousness and grant you his righteousness. All right, I have a closing verse for you today and I want you to try to think, why would I include this closing verse along with this sermon? I do this every single sermon. So when I give you a text verse or a closing verse, it's being tied in to the theology of what we're talking about. This verse here may help you to understand what's going on before we get to the end of the chapter. Here we go from Ephesians chapter 2, just like the text verse was. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All right, I hope that will help you tie together what we're talking about. Two more sermons and you'll have all of the answers you need from this beautiful and marvelous, marvelously planned 
chapter of the Bible. All right, next week we have Genesis 34, verses 13 through 24. It's called Blueprint. We don't need no blueprint. So make sure you study those verses, read them, think on them. Why is God telling us this? What is he trying to show us? I assure you that it is very important for our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. One more thing before we have our poem and our communion. I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things both for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called Not Following the Blueprint. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom to Jacob she had born, uh, went out to see the daughters of the land, maybe to see the fashions that they had worn. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her, doing what was not right. He violated her, something that would bring trouble for sure. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, for the daughter of Jacob he yearned. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to her as his love burned. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife, for this I am praying. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then together the matter would be revealed. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field. When they heard it, their attitude was quite grim. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done, as you can tell. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem for your daughter longs. Please give her to him as a wife. Instead of anger, let there be wedding songs and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us as well and take our daughters to yourselves. Let there not be just one wedding bell. So you shall dwell here along with us and the land shall be open before you. Dwell and trade in it. You shall do thus and acquire possessions for yourselves. This you can do. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. She is to me the greatest prize. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. I love her deeply, even more so, as you can plainly see. There are right ways and wrong ways to do the things we do in life. Following the blueprint all of our days will keep us from unhappiness and from strife. In our relationship to God, we have been given a plan. It is our guide and our help to know him better. It is the word of God, a gift bestowed upon man. So let us cherish its words and even each letter. The book as a whole tells us about our Lord. There we learn of our Savior in his holy word. And so let us read it and follow it all of our days, learning to love him and to shower him with all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of instruction which you give us in the pages of the Bible. And everything that we need, I mean, it's, it's all right there. How to uh, set our life on the right course, how to uh, engage with young women and with young men in relationships and how to uh, live with our family, the wife that we've been married to a long time or our parents, it's all there. It's all there to help us understand what you would have for us and it's the right way. You're not gonna mislead us, you're the one who created us and so you know everything that we should be doing in order to live happy and healthy and wholesome lives. We thank you for that. And once again, I'd pray for each person here that is attending and uh, that you would bless them in the week ahead and just fill them with happiness fill them with joy, fill them with good food and with many blessings and just help them to uh, 
be a light and a witness of your glory to every person that they meet. Just uh, help us to cherish the opportunity to do that. And we ask these things that you will be glorified, and we ask them in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.